Hey everyone, and welcome to Roll for Enterprise. For once this week, we are A, all here, and B, we don't have any guests. After a good run, we've had some excellent conversations, so if you missed out on the last couple of episodes, it's probably worth going back and checking those out too. But we wanted to catch up on some of the news that we didn't discuss while we were busy uh, having those fun conversations. So Microsoft Ignite is already a couple of weeks in the past, so I had to refresh my memory about the Cirque du Soleil extravaganza in virtual space. It was uh, it was something, something definitely, uh, to watch in the afternoon. But there were a couple of announcements that were right in our wheelhouse, especially around uh, low code. Uh, they announced this uh, Microsoft PowerFX uh, language, uh, which is based on Excel syntax. And that pushed a bunch of buttons for us, but I think especially for you, Zach. What was your take? Could have attended Ignite and paid attention. I think it's um, look. I think it's I think it's here. I'm impressed with it. I like how Microsoft also focused a lot of their use cases around industrial and manufacturing. Which, Mike, I'm going to hand you the baton. I'd like your thoughts there. But I'd also like your thoughts, Mike, on you know, for example, um, we'll just call it out. I mean, it's it's a it's out there in the wild. Uh, Gartner doesn't believe in no code, Mike, and and low code to them um, is barely a thing. They're just calling it lower code. Uh, what do you think about that, Mike? And then what do you think about the use cases, industrial and manufacturing, just being a, kind of the center of attention around, around um, uh, like, you know, what they're doing with AI and some of their announcements? Now, now I have a multi-part question. Like, this is this is blowing my mind. I don't know if I could keep it all together. So I'm, I'm, I'm struggling here, Zach. So um, <laughs> I have faith in you. Oh, man. Okay. Or, let's, or, let's... or what, what would Clippy do? Oh, what would Clippy do? Like, <laughs> everybody loves Clippy. I can't believe they're still they're still taking grief. We'll, for we'll get to that in a minute. Go ahead. Um, no, so okay on, on low code, no code. I mean, everybody's going low code, no code, and I think uh, if people think it's not a thing, it's because they're stuck in their their little box, focusing on the the, the micro and not the macro, right? I, you know, if you think of why so many programmers became programmers, I mean. Um, you know, when we were playing video games, I, I think you you got bored eventually of your PC and you started to say, all right, what can this PC do? And you, you start to learn coding and you do more and more and, and you just go like all, all crazy and, and start to do some some pretty cool use cases. I think when you when you look at it today, it's like, all right, that that doesn't exist anymore. Right. Because you could stay in your um, in your metaverse for a long time. Uh, gaming consoles are, are, are here. And I. I dare to say that people aren't playing as many video games on PCs, but okay, I could be wrong, uh, but everybody has a Mac now. Um, so I think the way to get people programming is you start with low-code, no-code, and then people will want more and more and start to code eventually. Uh, so so I think the, the avenue to come in is different, and I think low-code, no-code is, is here to stay because there are going to be people that are going to continue to create that uh, that abstraction level for... Uh, for users to just take advantage and to do more, right? We're we're ca- kind of constantly looking at the the optimization curve um, there. So, yeah, I, I think it's going to continue. Do you call it lower code? No. To be honest, the word code is not even going to be in there because they they want people to use it and to um, to take advantage of it. So so that's the way I see it. I mean, maybe we take on the manufacturing one after, but I'd like to get the others' opinions here. Yeah, I actually really like the whole idea of it because it feels like it it lowers the barrier of entry into what was sort of a, a seen as a specialized, very specific 
club of people, often a boys club of people who had had CS degrees and so forth, that now all of a sudden, you know, there are other ways to control and access and manipulate data and computer systems and applications that don't require necessarily the same technical training, but and actually can achieve very solid results. I mean, we're not looking for these types of technologies to build out high-end transactional, you know, trading systems, right? We're looking for them to solve specific use cases. You're not going to build a complete organization on it. Absolutely right, Lilac. Yeah, but that's where the Excel syntax thing is so important because whenever there are these surveys with the most used programming languages, most used IDs, et cetera, et cetera, uh, someone always has to be the one to point out, yes, but more than all of these put together is Excel. People are writing business critical functionality in Excel, and they really, really shouldn't, but that's the tool that's available to them. If we make it so that we lower, as Lilac said, that barrier to entry and people can do what they need to do for their jobs, but in a way that's more safe and more sane, better integrated with, uh, in inverted commas, real programming, and I like the registers take on this in particular, will be in a better place because there won't be that huge gulf between I wrote an Excel macro and I actually developed, uh, once again, in inverted commas, real application. But it's really hard to do that these days. The on-ramp has got so steep. Back in the day when I was learning web programming, I could view source on a web page and I could figure out more or less what was going on and I could make small changes, see what happens, and then write my own HTML from scratch. Try to do that these days. Oh, forget about it. A web stack is a dozen different things, none of which have any vowels in their names. <laughs> forget about <laughs> it as a novice trying to figure out what all of that is. I mean, and it's it's accelerating development cycles. I mean, that's that's the big thing nobody really mentions. Um, you know, and then I also want to talk about what about the power of of this across multiple clouds. You know, I mean, leveraging the best of each cloud with with functions, for example, right? A form of no code. I, I think the the problem in all of this is back end as a service, right? So how do you handle the storage and all this other stuff on the back end? But uh, I, I think there's a lot of power once you start taking this in a multiple cloud environment, uh, you know, just leveraging the best of all worlds. But but as you go low code, I mean, the, you know, there's that abstraction that the, what's what's behind the scenes doesn't really matter, right? It, it, it just works. And I think it's to us professionals to make it work. It's limiting the growth right now. I wouldn't say it's limiting, but what I'm saying is once we start to solve that, then the use cases will increase. I think, you know, adoption will increase. And to Lilac's point earlier, it's not going to solve all the world's problems. Um, there's always going to be, you know, some parts and pieces out there that aren't no code. But I, I think to to stick your head in the sand and say, we don't believe in it, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how Gartner can do that. No, and I was talking to a different analyst firm uh, this week. And they're very much all in on low code and no code and suggesting all sorts of things that the industry should be doing better, uh, which I largely agreed with. So, and we'll see how that pans out in the next few years. My concern, as always, is that the programming language and programming environment purists will resist doing anything that's too handholdy and noob oriented. And meanwhile, people will just do their jobs with the tools they have to hand, regardless of whether they're the best tools. And the dangers of that are significant, right? There was a famous story of uh, Barclays and Lehman Brothers. So when Lehman Brothers went bust and Barclays was winding it up, there was some, I think it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars of mischarged uh, funds 
due to a programming bug in the Excel spreadsheet because Excel spreadsheets don't have the sorts of guardrails that we're used to in you know, real, once again, programming languages. And so that sort of stuff can happen and can go undetected. Someone's trying to move from one cell to the other and somehow gets into edit mode and some random characters get added to the middle of a formula and suddenly hundreds of millions of dollars go poof. That's not ideal. So if it has to be Microsoft who picks up that baton and does it, I'm glad someone's doing it and I hope more people follow their lead. I think it's really smart to put this like all in Excel context. I mean, I, I we always used to joke <laughs> at some uh, different companies that, you know, if Excel stops working, some companies would stop working. And if you think of like people working in Excel, I mean, I mean, how, how often have you opened an Excel spreadsheet and thought to yourself like, holy cow, what, what kind of sick mind built this Excel spreadsheet? Uh, I know those just... sick minds. They're lovely people. <laughs> yeah, they're lovely people. But, <laughs> you know, you, you, you tend to look at it and you say, wow, the, you know, they, they put in already quite a bit of programming and it's people, maybe it's not the most polished, but they've done something. So to extend that and to extend it where, hey, the data is already in Excel, I, I think Microsoft is thinking two or three steps, steps ahead here, Will, where they will suck in the knowledge, they'll suck in the data and yeah, they're, they always they always say stay one or two uh, steps ahead. So I, I think it's yeah, I, I think it's completely the right move for 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 Microsoft to make. I agree entirely. Um, so okay, so that's the low code side of things. You left the IoT side uh, previously. So why don't we go back to that? Because the industrial IoT angle was also something that I noticed at Amazon reInvent. And that does seem to be a bit of a trend with the cloud reaching to, to the network edge and just generally sprawling all over everything. And so that's a, a very interesting topic to my mind. Ma manufacturing is is going through a bit of a, a revolution, I would say. And, and that's why... I, I tend to believe that both companies are, are focused here. I think it's uh, it's part of um, you know we, we speak about the supply chain issues around uh, around semi, but really it's it's there's there's supply chain issues everywhere, and, and I think companies are are battling that. But also there is uh, unfortunately to say a more nationalistic approach that that countries are are taking to manufacturing. Meaning I think there's. There's a real push for the first time in a long time amongst all countries, not only the U.S., to build more factories at home. And so I think there's going to be a revolution where more and more manufacturing and bare bone manufacturing is going to start happening in different countries. So it's a market that's going to accelerate. And I think Microsoft and Amazon just see the opening and are going to push for for new technologies because because let's face it, I mean if you if you compare, uh, you know. Um, Western countries with uh, India and China and, and Asia pack and in the whole, it's really hard to compete unless you automate more, you, you can get, um, you know, better improvements in there. And so this is where I think that push is coming. So yes, I guess they're all pushing. I, is it going to stick from these companies? I, I think there's a lot of companies with very specific use cases for manufacturing, depending what type of manufacturing you're doing. So, uh, you know, I think when I look at Microsoft and, uh, and even Amazon, they're, they're taking a, a broad stroke approach and seeing what will stick. Uh, I don't know how many companies are actually using their technologies in, um, 
uh, in, in manufacturing sites, to, to, to be honest. So it, it might be here and there, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know if it's widely adopted, but they're, they're going to they're gonna swing at the fences. I don't know if you guys agree, disagree, or, or how you see it. I think your assessment's probably right. Like my my feeling, and I'm not deep in manufacturing, and never have been. But my but my feeling is is that there's a lot of subtlety and differences, and and specific nuance to different kinds of manufacturing and different kinds of sizes of factories with different kinds of outputs, right? And and so the sort of blanket approach, this feels to me like this is a technology and a tool, but in order to truly be adopted, people who are very well versed in the nuances of a specific cut of this industry need to apply it and find a way to make it work in that context, rather than just sort of say, let's roll this out as an overarching new thing that's going to apply to everybody. Um, in a way, I think the analogy might be like an ERP system, which kind of makes sense at a high level for most businesses. But the truth is, is that the details of an ERP are very, very business specific and market specific um, and need to be very tuned, which is one reason why it takes so long to get them working for a company. Yeah, and I think the the equivalent of ERP on a manufacturer for is MEP. But I, I guess what I see most of is is IoT, right? So what they're actually going after is is data, and it always starts with the data. And I think that's yeah, step one of getting to step two for them, which is yeah, the the automation or uh, typically in manufacturing, the easiest use cases like um, uh, error detection and um, you know uh, eliminating all your variances. I mean, that's 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 number one. Yeah, you can do all sorts of things once you have the data, but getting it is always the hardest point. And the flip side of that is once you have it, data has a huge gravity. So it makes your platform very sticky. Everyone has to come to you to get the data. Uh, it's very hard to recreate that data corpus somewhere else uh, if some competitor comes in. Even if their technology is maybe better, it's a big ask to throw out all of the data that's been gathered or do the work to uh, extract, transform, and load it. Yeah, Microsoft was big on mentioning data around this manufacturing. Mm. I mean, they spoke about, you know, data being more private and sovereign, you know, the data explosion we're seeing both in the cloud and the edge, and, and they focused on the edge and IoT. So I think they're, uh, you know, they're, I think they're in the right place. Um, I think their messaging compared to reInvent, in my opinion, was um, a little more on point. So you're going to start hearing more also about operational technology, right? OT, as uh, as they like to call it, and, and that's what's on the manufacturing floor. And I think there, it's going to be hard for Microsoft or, or Amazon to break into. But if you look at what Am, you know Amazon has done around logistics with the robots and factories and, 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 and packing, I think they have a, a hand up on Microsoft here. Uh, but it's so much, so much more than that, like, right? Like it's a bunch of components. And I don't, I don't think you should discount incumbents who are strong in manufacturing, making machines, who have the data. And, you know, you know, I, I, I don't know how, how Microsoft and Amazon would play into, into these companies' hands because it's, it's not like they're going to give up uh, the advantage and the, the stickiness that they have. Well, you brought up a good point, Mike. So, first of all, never count Satya out. I think they'll make the right acquisitions. But let's talk about that. I mean, you're talking about there's a hardware element to this and you know uh, for the hardware we need chips we need you know i think ai is brought into this uh we're talking about a chip shortage but i mean um yeah this this is an interesting conversation right so yeah you you're, you're right i mean you're going to see more of these these robots and other things out there but um 
the bet the race is on then, right? The race is on for there is hardware. I know we, we beat down on hardware a lot, but when it comes to this, it's interesting, right? There's there's these AI chipsets and there's a hardware battle going on right now globally, right? Yeah, I think so. And it, yeah, is it a hardware battle? It's it's more of a chip battle, right? It's I meant to say chip battle. Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. Yeah, and I, I think to you know every industry is is suffering from it now except apple <laughs> apple seems to have <laughs> cornered the market and yeah and i, I they took um, the usual approach they threw money at the problem and they ensured that they'd have supply for what they needed to do and gosh you know the the automakers are actually asking apple or, or telling companies to to stop um to stop fulfilling some of the commitments they have to Apple, because I think Apple's eating up so much of the the demand and the and, and the supply at, at these factories that uh, that the others are are starting to suffer. But it just shows how, yeah, even Apple, how visionary they are. Yeah, and that's because uh, how this works is, you know, these are orders that have very long lead times. So you place the order a long time ahead of when you think you're going to need the actual chips. And the fab reconfigures to supply whatever chips you need. And the auto industry has some pretty specific needs. So they don't need super high performance, but the chips need to be hardened to a standard that normal consumer electronics aren't. And they need to be durable, again, in a way that normal consumer electronics aren't. So it's it's not an immediate thing to, to retool. And last spring, the automakers canceled a bunch of their orders, and all of those slots are gone now, and they have to wait. And so now there's all sorts of gamesmanship going on, as I understand it, about people uh, overordering by two and three times in the hope of going to the front of the queue and then canceling part of their order and the chip makers getting wise to that and refusing to take orders that they think are outsized, uh, that's just strategic moves. It's uh, like many industries, it's super fun once you look into these details. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. That's, yeah. uh, it's like the Hunger Games of getting a vaccine appointment, only with chips. <laughs> kind of. Maybe someone should do the, the you know the better vaccine site version that runs on somebody's laptop for fifty dollars, uh, ruling out the fact that they took two weeks to build it at their inflated Silicon Valley developer salary, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Should have just done it in Excel. Should have just done it in Excel. That's it's the right. only way. That's, really. the, that's it. <laughs> How about Microsoft PowerPoint? They announced AI PowerPoint Presenter Coach. It's available now. So, what if, what does everybody think about that? Clippy rides again. <laughs> <laughs> I am horrified. I just want to go on the record as saying, as as somebody who has done a fairly excruciating speech training. Hi, thanks, Karen. Um, <laughs> it um, the idea that I'm going to be schooled by PowerPoint on the cadence of my presentation of slide ten and my tone is just I, I i i can't even put to words the anger i feel around this yeah i, I think i need to write to your it department let them know to stock up on monitors because <laughs> from your desk with fist shaped holes right through them and having been through that same presentation training was super valuable but yeah i would not take it well from clippy <laughs> it it just isn't like i I, I fully understand that somebody can understand the nuance of my tone from my voice and somebody can analyze this podcast and say she was happy or snarky or spoke too quickly. I, I get that. I get that that is something that you can do. 
However, the idea that my meaning and how it lands and understanding my audience, which presumably Clippy hasn't worked out, right? There's just so much to how you present. Am I presenting on a WebEx? Am I presenting to an all hands meeting? Am I presenting to an all company meeting? Am I talking to a group of seven people? Like, is this a persuasive discussion? Is this a information sharing discussion? Like, what? Clippy, stand down. (laughs) But I think you start somewhere and then you see where it where it sticks, right? So so and and if you think of the capabilities Microsoft has, it's like, hey, let's turn on the camera, the microphone, let's figure out what people are doing and we could tell them how to improve. But like, okay, we could do it in, in the entire office suite, but people would probably find that really creepy if I said, Hey, I want to watch you all day and listen to you all day and suggest improvements. So where do you start? You start with PowerPoint and yeah, you know what? Hey, uh, why don't you do a, a run through of this uh, presentation? I'll listen to you. I'll watch you. And then I'll make recommendations. I, I think it's, it's, it's nuts if like an AI is going to start to tell you, hey, maybe you want to change the tone here, your cadence, this. That. But I think it's a, it's a great starting point because people will use it. They'll trust it. They'll feel comfortable with it. And then you can expand from there. And I think if if you're going to start anywhere, it's on PowerPoint because it's probably, I mean, because so many people do it badly. <laughs> exactly, so many people do it badly, and I think that's I, that's I, my my thoughts as well. There's a yeah, low and, bar here, and lots of people could benefit from just some basic timing advice without getting into the tone and all of that. But just you know, you spent two minutes on this slide and ten minutes on that slide. You may want to rebalance that, or put in a build, or do something like that. The, I haven't used this thing yet because literally the upgrades uh, just hit my laptop before we started recording. So I haven't had the occasion to even do uh, a milk run with it. But I'm reserving judgment. I found all sorts of assistants super annoying in the past. I do see how this could potentially be valuable. Um, We'll see. Report back. And and you're right on, uh, Dominic, right? Because I I think, uh, Lilac, I I don't think we are the target audience per se. Uh, but I think Dominic, you're right. Like there's so many people do it bad and, and, and see where it goes. I, I think the more interesting question is, okay, so you're going to do this. And now really at the back end, we're somehow somewhere in an organization, they're going to know who are the best presenters and who are the worst presenters and who's working on improving themselves and who's not working at improving themselves. But that makes it even more horrifying, Mike. Yeah, that's in your MBOs now. And that is, I think, where companies are struggling with the question of like, do we want to do this? Do we not want to do this? Do we want to turn it on, not turn it on? And I think, to be honest, I leave it to the employee because I'll use it. I mean, I, I'll, I'll automatically use it. I mean, you, you turn on some of these features and, you know, I, I'm in, I'm in, you know, it's, yeah. But I, I think I, I that's the more important part. I, I honestly, I get that. I understand that you could do certain metrics, just like having like a Fitbit telling me how fast I'm running at any given point and spoiler slow. Um, but like, yes, I can say, you know, I sped up during the middle of my run and slowed down at the end or whatever. And that's interesting data to have. So fine. But the actual magic to being more than just a passable presenter, like a, a decent or even a confident presenter, even getting over the nerves, which are usually the number one issue for anybody learning to do public speaking, that the nerves are the biggest problem. Coaching somebody through this, and I've had teams and teams of people that have worked for me and that we've worked through this with like coaching somebody through this is not a clippy function right just like writing a resume was not a clippy function and clippy never once helped me write a business letter like it just isn't a thing 
It looks like you're trying to present to the board. (laughs) (laughs) You sound meek and hesitant. Can you maybe change your posture? (laughs) Like, what are you going to tell me? Yeah, Yeah, that's the the failure mode. If it tries to do too much too soon, uh, and that's the, the kind of Microsoft Bob, even more than Clippy. Know, wait until version God. five. Wait until oh, version five. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Mm. We'll see. I'm, I'm going to try it. I'm curious. Uh, okay. If it gives timing stuff, it could be interesting. Uh, I have to admit, PowerPoint has fallen out of my toolkit. Uh, so we standardize on Google Slides uh, to work, and I use Keynote for my personal stuff. Ooh, so I'm uh, sorry. You, you've oh. Google Slides. I'm sorry. Google Slides. Yeah. Yeah. Google Docs used to be good uh, up to call it five years ago. And then it just stopped. It stopped moving forward. And everyone else has kept on moving forward. And right now, there's no unique selling proposition for Google Docs beyond runs in the browser, which is actually also the source of many of its problems because you can't rely on keyboard shortcuts because sometimes the browser catches them and sometimes Google Docs catches them. And so sometimes you undo closing a tab three windows away and sometimes you undo your last three lines of typing and you don't know which. Anyway, that's a whole other rant. Well, think about what we're saying here. Microsoft is, you know, they're advancing their their tools, right? Yeah, that's the Microsoft way. They release a, a first version that kind of sucks, but it tests the water. And if it's good, they iterate and they get to version three, version four, and it starts getting at least usable. What is Google doing right now with their office, right? With their, um, yeah, you know, maybe their, their docs. And- maybe that's the next entry in the Google graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> bring, it, bring back Google Reader. Let's start a petition. Yeah. Let's, oh, uh, let's- my gosh. Would somebody do that? <laughs> I. I use Google. I use Google Slides for every week. I help a friend of mine who is um, a minister do her slides for her Zoom, um, whatever. So I'm cutting and pasting Bible passages into slides every week, and I have to tell you that my gratefulness to Microsoft is like compounding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The more you use Google Docs, the more oh, come back to Microsoft Office, all is forgiven. <laughs> what, what, what's also interesting is that you know PowerPoint hasn't evolved too much, and Excel hasn't evolved too much, and I think they're very heavily used Microsoft tools, and they need to. And, and maybe Excel is yeah has a front end called Power BI that is um, is flooding organizations everywhere. But I think PowerPoint could use some. Um, some improvements here, but, but by the way, is this like, I'm not a zoom user, but is that like, I, I've been on some zoom calls where people have video in front of, like you see them in the slide with, with their video. Is that a zoom feature? Is that just some That's kind of built into zoom or there's an app, which I actually recommended a little while ago called M M H M M, which is a more sophisticated version of that. But uh, Zoom snaps up that uh, that feature pretty quickly. They kind of Instagrammed mm-hmm, Snapchat, <laughs> and uh, you can put your own floating head in your slides now. It, it's kind of it's kind can of it, awkward. Can it have makeup the way that the Zoom filter works. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can do the snap cam. You could do your snap cam into your Zoom thing and put your floating head. <laughs> Get careful about snap uh, snap cam. You could turn yourself into a cat, and it won't change. And next thing you know, you're you're joining some presidential briefing or something as a cat on the news. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so okay. careful. That, that, that was hilarious. Stop the bus. I'm getting off. Like I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I am an attorney. I'm not a cat. Right. But the last thing about Microsoft Ignite, though, uh, was it was free, which is not how it normally is. But virtual events 
uh, this past year have all been free, even when their real-world counterparts had cost significant chunks of cash. But uh, this past week, uh, I got an invite, and Zach, sounds like you got the same one, to an analyst event, uh, which was pushing $1,000. That's $1,000 for a fully virtual event. I'm not sure. I, I attend this analyst's in, in real life events uh, all the time for many, many years, and I find them super valuable. I always uh, try to persuade my employers to stump up for them. But the most valuable part is not the part that's on the official agenda. It's all the hallway track and the coffee break and the networking and the meeting people. And I have yet to see a virtual format where any of that works. There's quite a bit of startup dollars going into startups for uh, for virtual events to fix that problem. Um, but to pay, I, I guess eventually some of these will have to be pay. But I mean, Microsoft's going to get business. An analyst, what business are they going to get? I, I think, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I, I, I take... Like I give my fair share of criticism to analysts, but I, I think they're being they're being surpassed by some business consultants. I mean, yeah, I I don't know. Um, I mean, they're trying to tell a story, but of course, the you know you'll never see an analyst on a podcast unless it's their own, um, and I think that's because they don't want to handle the criticism. And I think there's, um, I, I think analysts for the first time see a risk. Uh, that wasn't there before because we've gone completely virtual, and I think they're they're under attack. I, I don't know about the staying power of, of some of these analysts and, and their research, to be honest. And I think um, I think you nails it with that one word with the research. Uh, my perception has been that not universally, but broadly speaking across the industry, there's a lot less primary research uh, that's being done. Uh, many analysts have even shut down or drastically cut back their units that used to do that sort of thing. I was trying to find someone to do some benchmarking uh, for us at work, and it's been an uphill struggle. I think we found someone who has the right set of skills and experience to do that now, and so the project's underway. But it was much harder than the last time I had to do this uh, six, seven, eight years ago. And... Meanwhile, a lot of business analysts, the likes of Ben Thompson, for instance, uh, or Benedict Evans, you know, people who have a newsletter and opinions are taking that side, the storytelling side, and the traditional analyst role, I get the feeling it's being a little bit squeezed in between those. Yeah, and one thing that's kind of interesting, um, having come from the analyst world is, you know, you have to move fast. And sometimes, you know, in the analyst world, you don't just write a paper, you have to submit the topic, people have to look at the topic, they edit it, then you got to submit an outline, they look at that, okay, some people can evolve, they edit that, you write it, there's a lot of checks and balances. And so, yeah, three months, but a lot of times, some papers take four, five, six months. So you now you're writing about something that you wanted to write about really eight, nine months ago, right? Because you started looking at topics eight, nine months ago. And so I don't know, are they are they pivoting fast enough? Then I think about budgets and organizations, um, you know, their budgets typically come out of the IT budget pool. So now I, I just wonder, you know, um, you know, with these budgets moving around, are they in the right place as the cheese moved on them? And I'm not picking, I'm not picking on, on really <laughs> any particular analyst from, I shouldn't, I shouldn't sound like I am cause I'm not, but I'm just thinking, you know, uh, you know, just like uh, analyst firm telling me they don't believe in no code. I mean, how, how can you say that? I mean, is, is that just to be different? So you want people to call you up and talk about it? I mean, I, I, I just, 
and how these decisions are made are interesting too. I mean, you sit in there and I was told by a particular analyst that, yeah, I mean, there was a divide or what does that mean? There's a divide. So you don't believe in it because one extra person said, Oh, I'm the fourth vote out of seven. It doesn't exist. I don't know. I just, uh, I'm challenged with that. It's okay to still be formulating an opinion. It's okay to change your mind later on. And I think the, uh, the analyst world, they dig in and, um, yep. you know, they, they kind of, uh, they they kind of stick to their to their guns, and and that's part of the problem with the whole the whole world. The way I I, I see it in the in the analyst uh, stratosphere. So I kind of disagree. I mean, I think that we look to them for something they're not going to provide, right? Um, I think I, the way I approach and work with analysts, and I and I do constantly. I don't think a week goes by that I'm not talking to one of the big firms. The um, the way I approach it is like, give me a framework. How do you view this world? Don't give me an answer. You're not going to give me an answer. I don't actually trust you to give me an answer because you don't know me and you don't know all the things about my product and my customers that I haven't told you because I've been circumspect about it intentionally. Uh, what you do know, though, is that you've got some data points from all the other vendors in the industry and from a set of customers in this industry. So what is your framework? How do you look at this world? And I take that framework and I marry it with the framework of the other firm and even the four other guys at the same firm or gals and say, for me now, how do I build a picture that looks right for me and for my company and for its strengths and for my industry and what are particular nuance on it? And I think if you look at them in that way, rather than hoping to find what is the right product to buy or what is the right answer, what is the right strategy, because they're never going to give you that because they don't actually have all the information to do that. And frankly, because they don't want to put a stake in the ground on something that is really very flexible and amorphous. And to Zach's point, probably six months later than they want to do. Right. And so to me, like if I look at them just as a way of organizing a, a lot of complicated and interesting data, um, they work very well. This is absolutely true. Right. And it's the benefit of analysts in that sense is that it's one of the few times that everything gets normalized back across an entire industry and all the players within it and you can refer back to something and point at it and say look this is the definition this is what uh what we're scoring against and it's universal where pretty much any other time that's going to be fuzzy and up for grabs so that's the the valuable part but i don't know i get the feeling that there's a there is some of what mike said there's some people who uh, focus on reputation, the personal reputation, let's say, and don't want to be don't want to be wrong. And whether this manifests as never wanting to make a clear statement or refusing to re-examine assumptions, uh, these are the different failure modes of the same thing. Uh, in other cases, it's what I was saying. There's the lack of primary research, and because I know I fully understand the analyst. Uh, situation as well this is a fast-moving industry it's getting broader and wider all the time categories keep flowing into each other and refusing to stay nicely put in your categorization so you have to rewrite your whole taxonomy every five minutes so i get that and so it's not something that the the analysts have missed through malice or incompetence it's just that the job that they used to do is becoming much more difficult nigh on uh, impossible in some situations and new roles have emerged to match the new situation so that that's kind of 
where I'm coming from. I still find a lot of value in analyst conversations, I have to say. And not that's not just because I know a bunch of analysts listen to us, but it's always uh, useful to challenge your assumptions so that we don't fall into those right. same traps I just described. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said. I'm, I'm the same way, right? I value those discussions. I mean, I probably had four in the last week and a half. Um, I, I just use it as data, another data point. Yeah. I, I, I think also, just, just to be fair here, I, you know... It, you're going there for thought leadership. You're you're going for the ideas for, uh, let's say, for uh, like an idea jam, okay? I, I think you could get the same from talking to a bunch of CIO or industry leaders or so, you know, I and as the barriers break down and as we learn about, you know, who the leaders are in, in different spaces, I think the network will grow and um, that will cause a bit of disruption in, in that area. But yeah, it remains to be seen, I would say. Definitely. Anyway, we're over time, but uh, I just wanted to point out for the listeners, we are very much aware of all of the security news that has been going on. All sorts of stuff has been happening. Uh, there was the SolarWinds breach that we already talked about. There was Exchange breach. Uh, hackers broke into Tesla's security cameras. That was one of the headline victims. So, you know, do be careful out there. Um, patch early, patch often zero days uh, out there and on the other hand if you're relying on a cloud vendor or any third-party vendor make sure you check that they have these capabilities and the right security posture for your business it used to be that you could say it was the old hikers maxim right you don't have to outrun the bear you just have to outrun the slowest hiker in your group so you don't have to be totally 100 percent secure uh, as the, the old saw goes, the only secure computer is one that's unplugged, sealed in concrete, and dumped in a disused mineshaft. And even then, I have my doubts. And so you don't have to achieve that level of ultimate security. You just have to beat the average so that the script kiddies will move past you and go to a softer target. The one thing that's notable about these latest attacks is the loss of them are just broad-based, anything goes, just snarf up everything of the exchange hack in particular, it does, does seem to have been completely indiscriminate. So that does change the security posture a little bit. And I think we should have an episode about that uh, in the near future to talk about how that's changed. Anyway, so with that, thank you all for listening. As ever, you can follow the show on Twitter at Roll4Enterprise with the number four or on our LinkedIn page. And tune in next week we've got a guest coming in uh, once again so we're back to a recent run of uh, of guests slots on the podcast uh, but until then have a great time and we'll talk to you soon thanks everybody yeah thanks everyone thank you